Another pet peeve, and I, I think I've mentioned this before, is the contrast that happens in evangelical churches between Mother's Day and Father's Day, where Mother's Day, we're all warm and hallmarky, and, which is great. Don't get me wrong. I love it. I love it, right? So we have love and roses and, you know, God made moms and isn't that great and all that kind of stuff. And then Father's Day rolls around and it's like the evangelical church wags its fingers at men as a category and says, you're a bunch of bums who need to shape up and get your act together. And, uh, you know, I'm not preaching on Father's Day, so Danny Ferguson's actually preaching. He might be doing that. I don't know. Um, but I would probably shy away from that if I was preaching on, Mother, on Father's Day. Uh, so, I don't know, I can't promise you that you're not in for a good smackdown, dads, on, in June with uh, Danny, but um, I don't know, at least we'll, today we'll continue, and there'll be something for both mothers and fathers, and for uh, also for everyone in our series, uh, continuing our series, as we talk about uh, holy matrimony. Now, if you're new and uh, you're visiting with us, we've been going through, after Easter, a series on marriage. And if you're visiting this morning and you're not married, you may have think, wow, did I come on the wrong week uh, for a, a talk on a holy matrimony. But take courage. There's a lot in our text today for individuals who are not married, single adults, young people as well, those who are widowed, divorced, everything uh, in between. And we've been walking through, in this series, a text in Ephesians chapter 5. And the goal and the purpose of looking at Ephesians chapter 5 is we get a a decent snapshot in Ephesians 5 uh, about what God's design and his purposes are for human relationships, most specifically for marriage relationships. And so we've explored various topics over the course of the last number of weeks, Uh, We've explored in the first weekend, we talked about what is God's vision and purpose for marriage, and we learned that that was really more about our holiness and how God wants to shape our lives as opposed to just exclusively our happiness. And then Pastor Keith led us through an adventure in misspelling when he asserted that there was no I in marriage and focused on uh, teamwork. And then we went on a little excursus the next week uh, in when Meg and I were in Fresno uh, visiting the team that's coming up there in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 to explore how the Bible and how our community of faith affirms singleness. And then last week we explored a very culturally charged concept, the idea of uh, the S word in the text in Ephesians 5 or submission or mutual submission. And we learned how it was a privilege for all of us to submit to each other out of reverence for Christ and not just an injunction directed at spouses. And so today we're going to look at the last verse in Ephesians chapter 5, which talks about love and respect. And then next week, because I'm in Africa and I love to leave all the really tough topics to the associate pastor, uh, Pastor Keith will be teaching on what the Bible says about sex. So you can uh, stay tuned for that. But today we're going to explore... Uh, a powerful text and a verse about relationships and the relationships tools that God has given to us in Ephesians chapter 4 and in Ephesians chapter 5. And we'll explore uh, the three of them that when used effectively can really transform your relationship in powerful ways. Not only your marriage relationship, but all relationships that you have so that there's the deepest possible kind of love 
and respect. So would you bow your heads with me as we look into God's word this morning? God, your word is truth. We are grateful for it. We are thankful uh, for the way in which it speaks to us. And so we would invite you to continue uh, to speak to us this morning in this place by your word. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, uh, my wife Meg and I met during our first week in college, and we hung out together a lot during that first semester, and then as it rolled into second semester, we had the DTR talk, the define the relationship talk, and then that started us down the path of dating, and we dated for three years, and then between our third and fourth year of college, we got married, and so we were young and poor college students living off of uh, just a, a pittance of a grocery budget, uh, but, but just uh, enraptured with the depth of sincerity of our love for each other. And I don't remember exactly when it happened, but I do recall after we graduated and were early in our careers that uh, I woke up one morning and realized, you know, the feelings of being in love might not actually last forever. And the, the in-love experience might not actually be enough to kind of catapult us through to, like, our silver golden uh, anniversaries. I don't know if you've had that experience at all. But I remember thinking to myself, I was not aware that this thing called marriage might actually be a lot of hard work. And when you come to this realization in your life, the Bible's actually a very helpful tool because the Bible doesn't pretend otherwise. In fact, here in, in Ephesians chapter 5, we have wonderful and practical advice that we've been exploring. And it finishes with a kind of summary statement on the tools that are necessary to build a lasting relationship. And so Ephesians chapter 5 finishes with this verse. So I say again, each man must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. The basic building blocks of any relationship are summarized for us there in that statement, love and respect. But notice the verse actually starts with um, sort of a backwards casting glance. So I say again, and this gives us a clue, just like we talked about last week, that He really wants us to go back and read again what he's been talking about already uh, in this section of Scripture, in the preceding two chapters, to find out, like, what is the definition? What does it actually mean for someone to love their wife in that way? What does it actually mean for someone to respect another person in that way? It's kind of summative shorthand. And so, Uh, I'm grateful to pastor and author Timothy Keller, whose book, The Meaning of Marriage, has helped shape my thinking about this area. And in it, Keller asserts that the basic tools for building love and respect in your relationship are that you must learn three things. You must learn to speak the truth in love, in the power of grace, God's grace. And so these three tools... Love, truth, and grace, when we build them into our lives, will do their best work in us when we are in that place of tension, when we're in that place of 
maybe passing out of that in love feeling and realizing that maybe it's hard to love the stranger to whom we are married. And so the first two of those, truth and love, find their definition and their inherent tension in the preceding chapter. So the author wants us to look all the way back to chapter 4. And I'm going to highlight verse 15 for us, which is a section about unity and living together in unity and in love. And so in Ephesians 4 verse 15, it says, instead, uh, instead of all of the kind of childish immaturity that we might find, instead we will speak the truth in love, growing in every way more like Christ, who is the head of his body, the church. And so Ephesians 4 verse 15 sets some of the ground rules here for us. And what I find about this text is that most people will gravitate towards one of these two extremes in our relationship. Either you might be a person who has tendencies to speak a lot of truth with just kind of a mere, just a smidge of love kind of tossed in to help people maybe hear it in a different way. Or you might be the type of person who is maybe not prone to speaking the truth. You don't want to hurt anybody's feelings in the relationship, and so you heap on a lot of the love and kind of every now and then let something sneak out that you might think maybe possibly if it wouldn't be too much trouble, it would be kind of nice to see change at some point if it's not inconvenience to you. But we tend to gravitate towards one of these two things. But marriage, as God has designed it for us, brings you into this closest of all possible human relationships. And because of this, we come to know both the best of our spouses, but we also come to know the worst about them. And so there's lots of opportunity in marriage to practice the power of truth because we come in contact with the worst of ourselves and other people whom we are close to. We talked about this in, in the first uh, opening set of the, me- of the series, but uh, I just say it again. I was a selfish person before I got married, but my friends and my parents and those around me, they weren't actually hurt by it enough to really take me to task on it. I didn't realize how selfish I was until I got married. And it's not that Meg sort of showed me how selfish I was. It's that the process of actually marriage itself holds a mirror up to your character and who you are as a person. I realized that when I got married, I was a person who wanted to be liked. And so I would shade the truth, but hardly anybody ever called me on it. But when you get married, things that are maybe minor inconveniences to your coworkers or to people that know you casually become major challenges in your marriage relationship. And this is because the power of truth is at work. Marriage shows you the unvarnished about yourself and about another person. And I can remember some of the early instances where Meg pointed out some of my character flaws to me, and it was hard to hear. And though I became defensive and I lashed out by pointing out some of her deficiencies and flaws that I also had come to see since we got married, deep down inside I knew that she was right. She had really found out the true me. 
And in a marriage relationship, this is an incredible gift that God has given to us, but it's a gift that's really, really hard to receive. When someone knows you well enough to speak the truth into your life, it's powerful, but it's very unnerving. It's kind of like Cinderella past midnight. All the magic of the ball is now gone. All of the pretending and the finery, and it's just... You, as a person, who you really are. No disguises, no assistance from the fairy godmother. And oftentimes when a person discovers who we really are, we want to run away. We want to provide a little bit of distance or a buffer between ourselves and that person. But Ephesians chapter 4, verse 16, the very next verse, reminds us that the goal of speaking truth into our lives is not to push us away, but the goal of speaking truth into our lives or receiving truth in our lives is that we would grow so that we would become healthy and so that we would become strong. You can't have respect and love in a relationship without a healthy dose of truth. But this is why I think some people hop around from church to church to church or relationship to relationship because they get into situations and then suddenly they're in a, in a state where someone gets to know them a little bit better, their guard comes down a little bit more, um, people begin to see them for who they really are, and then someone speaks truth into their life and they don't like what they hear, so they pull up roots and they move on to the next relationship or on to the next community and next place. When someone speaks truth into your life, it's a gift, but it's really hard to receive it. Speaking the truth into the life of another person is a powerful responsibility. So it comes with some warnings attached to it and a balance that we'll talk about in our next point. But before we go there, just a question for you to think about, and that is this. Who has the right to hold you accountable? Is there anybody in your life that knows you for who you really are? Cinderella past midnight. And if they know you for who you really are, do they have permission to hold you accountable? Someone has to know the real you behind the masks and pretenses, the quirks and rough edges. And the person that knows the real you should also have the capacity to speak into your life with the vision of helping you grow. But it's a sacred trust and responsibility. And it, it often isn't given because it often isn't invited, even in a marriage relationship. And so perhaps for you today, the takeaway is that you might need to go home and, and invite your spouse into your life in a more practical way. Ask your spouse about what they really think about how you're doing managing your fears and anxieties. Ask your spouse how your lack of discipline in the area of financial management is really affecting them. Ask your spouse about how you're doing managing your calendar. Give your spouse permission to be part of your growth into the person that God desires for you to be. And if you're a person who's here and is not married, give someone else that responsibility. Give someone in the church family that 
responsibility and permission to help you grow in this area. But right away, probably some of you are thinking already about the problem that exists when you just give someone permission to speak the truth into your life. It's a big problem because if I do that and they know the real me, but they do it in an unvarnished kind of way and a calloused way, they have the ability to hurt me at a very deep level. And some of you have experienced that already in your life and in your previous relationships. It may not have been in a marriage relationship. It may have been in your growing up experiences. Some people have spoken the truth into your life in, in an unkind or calloused way because they've had the, maybe the, the resources to do that. But it's wounded you so deeply that maybe you haven't recovered from that. And that's why Ephesians 4 verse 15 is so clear. It says, we must speak the truth to one another in love. It's not just truth that needs to get spoken, but it must be spoken in love. The power of truth must always be coupled with the power of love. I will resist the urge to break into a Celine Dion song here to make my point. But love has a unique and wonderful power in our lives to accomplish that which truth alone cannot. I don't know about you, but I have kind of, um, I mean, all of us have multiple layers in our world, but I kind of have like an inner circle and an inner layer uh, of people, and then like an outer layer of people. And this is where maybe Google Plus a strategy is maybe a little bit helpful to like Facebook, where everybody's just a friend, where you can at least sort of identify some of these things. But for me, outer circles, these are people that are acquaintances, they're people that I see occasionally, other pastors that I know, people I meet socially that I'm not super well acquainted with. And all of those people that I know in that category, they can say lots of nice things to me or about me, But all the while in my head, the tape that's playing is, yeah, yeah, you can say all those things, but you don't actually really know me. So your opinion is interesting, but perhaps not valid in a substantive kind of way. But people in my inner circle that I know really well and who know me really well have an incredible power with their words. People in the outer circle can say all kinds of things, affirming or maybe not affirming, but people in the inner circle have a different type of authority. If Meg says something affirming to me, I receive that in a very different way than somebody that I just met casually or don't know very well. And so this is in some ways the counterpoint to speaking the truth. And that is that when you speak uh, the truth but in love, Affirmation from those in our inner circle can actually undo or counteract significantly, sometimes even a lifetime worth of damage done by other people. Because we receive it in a different way. It's worth something more to us because of who it's coming from. In the movie, the Lord of the Rings, one of the characters, Faramir, says to the hobbit, Sam Gamgee, the praise of the praiseworthy is above all rewards. The praise of the praiseworthy 
is above all rewards. In other words, when you love and respect the person deeply, their opinion holds significant power in your life. The way the people close to you see you is more important to you than the way other people see you because they have unique access to your inner world. And so one of the things that we have seen in our marriage is that the power of truth in marriage has the ability to kind of hold up that mirror and help you see who you really are. But the power of love in a marriage has the ability to reprogram some of that wiring of your self-image and bring healing to places of deep hurt, which is a powerful thing. But it actually also can be a problem. I guess it's not, it's not so much a problem as maybe just a note of caution for us. Because if all the world says that I'm a failure, but my spouse speaks into my life words of affirmation and healing, I accept them. But the cautionary note is that the reverse is also true. If all the world says that you're beautiful, if all the world says that you're doing great and all of these things, but your spouse counteracts those things, you will believe what your people that are closest to you says. Because the opinion of those who are close to you are very, very powerful weapons. And cutting remarks from them wound us like nothing else. And this is in some ways the greatest problem of marriage. Because the one person in the world who holds your heart in their hand and whose approval and affirmation you most long for and need is the one person whom you hurt most deeply by your sins more than anyone else on the planet. Because Meg doesn't learn about my sins and my weaknesses in a, in a sort of detached way, the way that, say, a physician would learn about or study a person with albinism and skin condition. Meg doesn't discover things about my life the way in which a counselor might come to know my fears or my angers. Meg knows about my sins in my life because most frequently they're actually committed against her. Meg knows that I'm selfish because I'm selfish towards her. And one of the things that transpires in our lives is that when you are sinned against by your spouse, one of the go-to places can be that place of truth. And you can lash out against them with the power of truth. And you tell your spouse what a lousy person they are because you know their weak areas and their flaws. And you can go there very, very quickly and you can wound them very, very deeply. When we use the power of truth in our relationships, but we withhold the power of love, it can destroy the other person. But sometimes, knowing this, we can also swing to the opposite extreme. We can simply, in a relationship, exercise the power of love, tell the other person how wonderful they are, tell them about how happy we are about things and how our relationship is developing, And we stuff down deep inside how we really think and feel about things. And I wonder if in some ways the most difficult thing in all of the world to do is actually to come to a place where we figure out how to balance these two realities, the power of truth and the power of love in our 
relationships. We need to feel loved so there's security in the relationship in order to speak the truth. We need to speak the truth in order that there's a bedrock of love and respect in the relationship that continues to grow. And maybe that's where our third building block for love and respect comes in, and that is the power of grace. Because truth without love will ruin intimacy. Love without truth will give the illusion of unity in a relationship. It will actually short-circuit the growth and development of that relationship. And so we need a third ingredient, and that is the power of grace. When he was in college, my dad uh, was a part of a survey crew up in northern Ontario and northern Quebec, a part of a geological survey crew. And so uh, he, he had as uh, leftovers from this all kinds of really cool rocks that he had found uh, in that time. And so when I was growing up, he thought it would be cool and fun if we started a rock collection together. I don't remember him ever asking me if I thought that would be cool and fun, but anyways, we started a rock collection together. And so he bought one of these, I don't know if you've ever seen these things, but a, a gem tumbler. Are you familiar with these things? So like when you get the rock, right, just out in where rocks would be found out in nature, um, it doesn't look all shiny and nice. So you have to actually take it home, you put it in the gem tumbler, and you put a whole bunch of other rocks in there, and you close it up, and then you just let it kind of rotate for a week, and they kind of bash around against each other. Well, I did this, and then I opened my gem tumbler up, and all of the gems inside of it were actually, all of the rocks were busted apart. Like, they were just like, they'd crumbled to almost like nothing. And I went back to my dad, and I said, did I put the wrong rocks in? Did I do this? And he said, well, did you put, did you put the, uh, the sand in there? I'm like, what sand? Why didn't you put the sand in the gem tumbler? You just stick the rocks in there and just push you know, go and does its thing. And he says, no, 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 no. If you don't put actually that, there's a finishing compound in there. And if you don't put the finishing compound in, the rocks either totally break against each other and crack each other so that they sort of evaporate to nothingness, or they just kind of bounce off each other if they're really tough gems and there's actually no, nothing that happens to them. They just sort of bounce around in there for the whole week and then you take them out and they're the same as when they went in. But if you add in that uh, sand, the compound, the mix between those things, it actually creates the right amount of friction between those gems as they tumble around in there so that all of the rough edges are smoothed off and that all of sort of the things, the impurities are gone and the actual gem itself is left there and comes out smooth and beautiful. And so in a lot of ways... This grinding compound is like God's grace poured into a marriage relationship. Without the power of grace at work, the power of truth and love can't be combined to do the work that they need to do. But when God's grace enters the picture, amazing results can transpire in our lives. And this is what's going on in Ephesians chapter 4 as he transitions the chapter, he starts talking about all kinds of things. In verse 24, put on your new nature, created to be like God. Let the Spirit renew your thoughts and attitudes. Stop telling lies. Speak truth. Don't get angry with each other. If you've been stealing, stop stealing. Don't use foul or abusive language. Let things that you say be good and helpful or be encouraging to those around them. Be careful about how you live. And in verse 31, he says, get rid of 
of all bitterness, rage, anger, harshness, speaking the truth in love to each other. This is the rock tumbler effect in our marriage. Getting rid of bitterness, rage, anger, harsh words, slander, as well as all types of evil behavior. Instead, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, just as God, through Christ, has forgiven you. When God's grace is present in our lives, bitterness, anger, harsh words, slander, all kinds of other junk begin to get knocked off the rough edges of my character and my heart. But in order for the power of grace to do its work, a few things have to be present in my life. Firstly, I have to be willing to accept God's grace and let it be present, which requires on my part a profound humility because I have to actually acknowledge that I need it. I have to acknowledge that and invite God's grace to do a work in my life. To wield the power of truth and the power of love in a balanced way takes a huge helping of humility. You might be thinking to yourself, well, where in the world would I get that kind of humility? And the answer is that it actually doesn't come from this world. On our own, we are incapable as human beings of producing that kind of grace, that kind of demonstration of humility towards another people, that kind of combination. Because without an experience or a model for us of God's grace at work in our lives, we can get really proud and think that we have all the tools necessary for speaking to other people in love and in truth. But when we come to the gospel, we are reminded of the fact that it's transforming our understanding and reminding us of both the truth of our own sins and our own weaknesses and inadequacy in our own lives, but also the profound and the deep and the eternal love that God has for each and every one of us expressed in Christ Jesus. So God's grace is something that we can't manufacture or just try work it up in our lives. You can only reflect it to others if you are a recipient of it. And the gospel reminds us that on the cross, Jesus practiced truth and love and grace. On the cross, God saw to the very core of your heart and your being and mine. And all of the things that he saw there, all the depravity and the junk that accumulated there, he saw all of those things, and yet he still loved you. And so the power of truth and the power of love and the power of grace in a marriage is actually a miniature of the same power that Jesus exercised with us saw everything about us, knew everything about us, and yet still chose to love us and still chose to make a way that we could be in right relationship with God. And so maybe the, the deepest question to ask ourselves this morning is, have you as an individual had a deep experience of the grace 
of God? Have you had a deep experience of the grace of God? The story is told in, in many places of a Russian czar who was a general. And the general had a beloved a soldier in his army who was dying of wounds that he had received in battle. And the czar, because he was a good friend of this general, promised to take the general's son and to raise him as his own and to provide for him in every way. And so the general passed away. The czar made good on his promise. He invited the son and the young man into his life. He paid for him to be in the places of uh, highest honor and good places to live, the best education. And eventually the young man was given a commission and he entered the army. However, the young man had a deep and problematic addiction to gambling. And he couldn't pay his debts. And so he began to embezzle money from his regiment in order to fund his habit. And one night he was in his tent and he realized that, that it was up, that he was going to be found out and that he didn't have the resources necessary to pay it back in any way. He took a look at the books and he realized that he could no longer hide and he realized that the consequences of that. And so he decided to take his own life. And he'd been drinking heavily. And he decided he would take a few more drinks to steal himself, to commit suicide with a revolver in his hand. So he took a few more drinks, but the drink was so strong that he passed out there in his tent with the revolver in his hand on his table. And that night, the Tsar was doing what he often did. He dressed up in the plain clothes of a member of his regiment. And he walked around through the army tents, to get a sense of the morale of his troops. And disguised as a simple soldier, he walked into the tent of his foster son. And he came across him slumped on his table and the book open in his hand. And he read the book of accounts. And he realized what his foster son had done and what he was intending to do. And when the young man awoke several hours later, he was confused because the gun was gone and in its place there was a note. And the note read, I, the czar, will pay the full amount for my personal funds to make up the difference of accounts found in this book. See, the czar saw the full dimensions of the young man's depravity, but chose to, at great personal cost, apply the power of grace and the power of love to pay the price for the sin personally. And this is a mirror uh, in many ways of our marriage relationships because in so many ways, when you see to the deepest part of another's heart, you see their sin, but you also choose to cover it with forgiveness and say, I, I see what's going on in your life and you see what's going on in my life. But we choose to apply the power of grace just like the czar did for that young man. And so our marriages work in many ways as miniatures of what it is that God desires to do in your heart and in your life to continue 
to pour out His grace, which transforms us. I'm going to invite the team to come and they'll lead us in songs of response. And I'm going to invite you to stand with me. And as you stand, I'm going to pray for us. If you're here today and maybe you've never chosen to receive the gift of God's grace poured out in your life in the way in which the czar poured out his grace and forgave the debt of that young man. Maybe today is your day. If that's the case, I'm going to invite you as we bow our heads and close our eyes in prayer. Why don't you just look up to me, make eye contact with me, just stick your hand up and I'll come and find you afterwards. We'll pray together. And today can be the day that you start a life-giving relationship with Jesus as God's grace is poured in your life. Would you bow your heads with me as we pray? God, we are grateful for the way in which your grace works in our lives. In a lot of ways, we don't fully understand it because we don't fully deserve it. But you have made a choice at great personal cost on the cross to accept all of our faults and flaws, take them on yourself, and forgive our debt. And so, Jesus, our response to you is one of gratitude and one that desires, by your grace, to mirror that and to pour it out generously on the lives of others around us. Would you enable us, Holy Spirit, to do that? We can't do it on our own. We can't just work ourselves up into a place of receiving your grace. It's a gift that you've given to us. If there's anybody here today that wants to receive God's grace, just look up, make eye contact with me, stick your hand up. And we'll come and find each other later on. We'd love to help you start that new life with Jesus today. We're going to respond in song to God's grace, and maybe there's some grace that needs to be extended in your own relationships. If that's the case, maybe you just want to slip out a little bit early, go for a walk outside around the track and just say, you know what, I've come to see by God's grace that there's some things in my life that I want to confess to you and maintain right relationships with people around you. If you're in a place uh, today where you're in need of God's grace to face a difficult situation, our prayer teams will be available over at the side and at the back. We would love to pray with you and invite God to continue his work of grace in your lives. That the way in which we speak to each other and treat each other would begin to be redeemed by God's grace in our lives. So let's sing together as we respond and come and find the prayer team. We'll pray with you.